In the world of recording and session musicians, there are names that are staples on hundreds of major recordings. Names like Purdy, Lukather, Matheson, Phil and Gaines, Percaro, Kunkel, Sklar, Korchmar, and Rainey, just to name a few. One name that stands large amongst these session giants is today's guest, Jerry Hay. Having played since the age of three, Jerry followed his passion for music to Indiana University, then on to Hawaii to form Seawind, and eventually landed in L.A., where his trumpet skills have graced some of the biggest-selling albums of all time. For artists such as Quincy Jones, Earth, Wind & Fire, Al Jarreau, Toto, Michael Jackson, The Tubes, George Benson, The Manhattan Transfer, and so many others. Inside Music Cast is pleased to kick off 2015 with Jerry Hay. Jerry, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Happy New Year, Jerry. Happy New Year, everybody. 2015. You know, we're based here in Indianapolis, and uh, it, it's pretty much it's right next to Illinois, where you were born. You're, you're pretty much a Midwest guy, too, right, at heart? I, I am definitely a Midwest guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, from northern Illinois, and then went to IU, and, uh, you know, my heart's still back there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we just we're just up the street from you know where you studied it at, in Bloomington, and uh, you, I'm sure you remember all those days really uh, quite clearly. You know when we last spoke with uh, Larry Williams, he was on the show a while back, and you know he mentioned that you know he's a uh, he's an IU guy too, along with um, your friend Kim Hutchcroft. Those must have been some uh, some crazy years for you guys. Yeah, some great years. Larry Hall was also there. Charlie Davis. Yeah, uh, a whole host of guys who. Yeah. Uh, you know, I still I still see on a you know, a lot in town. Yeah. So well, and you know, and everybody's still doing well. Yeah. Well, obviously, at that time, you know, you got to college and you'd been you know playing for some years already because you started pretty early. But you know, at IU, we all know that you studied under Bill Adam, who was you know such an amazing teacher and you know who also taught people like Chris Bodie and Randy Brecker and you know Robert Burns from Earth Wind and Fire and they all studied under this guy. And but tell us about Bill and and uh, what you know because you, you your relationship with him went well beyond the music and other you know friendships after that. So. Tell us about this. Yeah, I was very fortunate to uh, be able to have a chance to study with him. I, I was originally going to go to Northwestern hmm. because I had taken from uh, one of the guys in Chicago Symphony, and he said, you have to go to Northwestern and study with Chickowitz, and just didn't feel right. And I called up a friend of mine and, who was going to Indiana, and he said, yeah, there's, you know, Indiana's, you know, big music school, three trumpet teachers, and, you know, it's got to be somebody good. And I just said, okay, that sounds good. I'll just go to Indiana not knowing anything and auditioned and fortunately got in with Mr. Adam. It was mm -hmm. a, just the, you know, best stroke of luck that a guy could ever have. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, a, a, just an amazing teacher, an amazing man, the positive to the, to the end. Um, I can't say enough about him. Yeah. Well, hey, you grew up in a musical environment. I mean, your mom was a pianist and your dad, I think he played trombone. And I think your older brothers were also musicians as well. And uh, you began playing a trumpet at an early age. But I'm, I'm just curious if you studied any other instrument and how, and how did the trumpet become your instrument of choice when you were young? Um, didn't study any, any other instrument. Uh -huh. Trumpet, uh, my brother, yes, uh, a 10-year-older brother played bugle in the Boy Scouts. Mm -hmm. And... So he brought it home uh, when I was literally like a year and a half, and I just picked it up and just started kind of blowing <laughs> into it. Mm -hmm. And that's how it started, and it, you know that was that was the beginning of it all. And then I got my first trumpet. I played in church when I was three okay. with my mom. Wow! <laughs> wow. Uh, a cornet, of course. I was, you know, I couldn't buy a trumpet. But yeah, it was yeah. Than I was. Uh, yeah, so I got a cornet and played in church when I was three. Well, it's funny. My dad played cornet. You know, he didn't. He never got a trumpet, but he always had a. He had a cornet, and he played by ear. But he was always playing also in church and that kind of stuff. But why was the cornet uh, more popular? It seemed like back then. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, not sure. You know, that was uh, in this town that I was in Dixon, Illinois. It was kind of a band town, mm -hmm. so cornet was kind of the. You know the the featured instrument sort of. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, you know, first of all, I was small. I mean, small up kind of through high school. Mm -hmm. Although I did get it. You know, I got trumpet when I was a sophomore in high school. But uh, you know, it's easier for younger kids to handle. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like, I guess. But at three years old, you were still able to, I'm just thinking about, you know, just being strong enough, even for any three-year-old, to, put, <laughs> to push air through a, through a horn. I know, really. That's that's impressive. I, I, I guess I played like Jesus Loves Me or something simple, yeah. you know. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I don't really remember, unfortunately. <laughs> I, remember, I remember the event. Yeah. And, and, you know, where, where we stood in the church, and I sort of remember that, but uh-huh. I don't remember, that there's, I don't think there was a program or there's yeah. not one that's still around anyhow. That's mm-hmm. funny. That's good. Well, moving on to high school, you took lessons from a guy named Bardell Bowman uh, in your hometown there of Dixon. And, and his son, Brian, is, he's a, I've heard of Brian, he's a like a world-class euphonium player. Is that right? He, yes, he is. Uh, and, and his father was an amazing band director. Uh-huh. Uh, he had in this town of fifteen thousand in grade school. Yeah, went through eighth grade. He had three bands of a hundred going. Holy cow! Wow, it was amazing. He was the music man. I am not kidding you. And um, he, he just—he really had created a lot of great musicians. Um, you know, and not a lot of them yeah. went on to be professional musicians, but there are some. Larry Black, who played in the Atlanta Symphony, you know, a trumpet player, mm-hmm. uh, he did pretty well. He had a, another son, Victor, right. who was a trumpet player, who, who studied with uh, Herseth in high school. Wow. And so he would come home and tell Bardell Bowman, you know, what he'd learned in in his lesson, and then he would, you know, try to relate that to me and uh you know and further my education and it, it just it was great and yes my mother played uh for brian for both of them as the accompanist through uh high school and then some through college uh-huh. you know brian came back and would play recital and my mom would accompany him wow. and uh it was great. It was a, just a great musical situation <laughs> in that town yeah. with bardell bowman I was thinking there's 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 something in the water there or was in Dixon because <laughs> yeah but, well it, it was it was Bardell Bowman I, I will yeah. have to tell you that well on just kind of on a side note Dixon is also known because uh, well known because that's where uh, President Ronald Reagan uh, spent I guess quite a few of his formative years there right yeah my dad um, went to high school my dad was a year younger than he was okay and and knew him well. Wow, that's cool. That's very cool. Well, after uh, two and a half years at IU, you, know, you got a call from your good friend, Larry Hall, inviting you to go out to Hawaii to play some shows with him. And, uh, you, you know, this is this is kind of interesting, but from what I understand, you confided in your teacher there, Bill Adams, and he actually encouraged you to go. He thought you were far enough along in your development, I guess. And did you find this unusual for your professor to give you the, the green light to leave school and pursue these gigs in Hawaii? Well, it just shows you you know, how, what, what kind of a teacher he, yeah. he is and, and, you know, and how much he knows about his students. Absolutely. First of all, he, he knew, you know, he knew that how much I had progressed over the course of those two and a half years. And he knew that I was going to be going out to, to, uh, Hawaii with Larry and we had already become best friends. And of course we still are, but you know, he knew that, you know, we were going to be out there together and uh-huh. it was just going to continue out there. And yes, it did, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we got, you know, we only got better in Hawaii. So, yeah. and I went, you know, the interesting thing is I went to, there was the head of the orchestra was Henry Smith, who was a trombone player, mm-hmm. conductor, he was Minneapolis orchestra and I think Cleveland maybe or something. Mm-hmm. I went to him and I was playing first in the orchestra that year. And he said the same thing. He said, you know what, you have this opportunity, you need to take it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a couple of the the, the professors understood it. You know, they, they, yeah. they got it that, that, you know, that's why we're there. Mm-hmm. You get an opportunity, you, got, you have to jump on it. That's very cool. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. So you're 21 years old and, you know, you've lived pretty much in the Midwest pretty much your whole life and... All of a sudden, in, in a flash, you're a thousand miles away on, an, on a beautiful island in the middle of the Pacific, and you're playing gigs. And was this heaven, or was this a true culture shock? And how did you adapt to everything, getting out there? Uh, what's not to like? Uh, <laughs> you know, you're, you're there with your best friend. Yep. Uh, you, know, a few, you know, a few of my best friends, Kim Hutchcroft, Larry Williams, yeah. David Lewell, who was an, also another great saxophone player from 
uh, IU, who was out, who was the reason that we all went out there. Wow! And and we we played in a in this show band. It was sort of like uh, Tom Jones uh, type of band: uh, three trumpets, two trombones, and three saxophones, and, and really good rhythm section. And it was just. It was great. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were, you know, we were really playing difficult music and having a good time, surfing every day, <laughs> practicing. Uh, what's not to like? <laughs> you know? okay. and, th- and then we formed, you know, we formed a couple um, uh, rehearsal bands when Gary Grant came over about six months later. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got a, a, a book that we played, a big band book, mm-hmm. and there was a guy over there that owned a drum shack who also had, oh, he had a bunch of charts because he was a copyist. And so he had copied some, you know, a lot of different charts for bands yeah. and had copies of them. So we had, a, you know, two days of big band rehearsals a week. Uh, we formed a small group um, to play parked and free concerts and just kind of have an outlet for what we wanted to play. And it was it was just a growing and learning experience. So it, it was, it was the best possible move I could have made. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that, you know, this, this other band uh, that you formed, you, you guys were playing some, uh, some, some, a lot of them were free gigs and parks and different places around, but what was paying the bills? And I wondered if there was a good amount of session work in Hawaii. No session work yeah. to say, I mean, you know, yes, there would be a, a, an odd uh-huh. something here and there, but, yeah. You know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't pay very much. Yeah. Um, paying the bills was, um, my wife was, well, at that time she wasn't over there yet, but, you know, we got married and she came over, you know, and she was working and we weren't making very much money. We didn't have any bills mm-hmm. to speak of, mm-hmm. you know, with food and, and, you know, not much of a, an apartment, uh, cost. Yeah. So it, it wasn't really, we didn't even really think about it, you know. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was a day-to-day thing, but it was just kind of this is, you know, this is what we're doing, and here we are. Yeah, you're honing your chops and having a good time, and <laughs> and uh, you know, just yeah, yeah that's cool. It's uh, that's that's neat how you just get by with uh, the love of what you're doing and getting out there, surf a little bit, and enjoying a little bit of paradise. Work when you need to, pay the bills, and and you're you're there. You know, um, I got a question for you, Jerry. You know, how did you and Gary Grant meet? You know. Playing these shows, and then there were a couple, sh- well, I think three shows going on at the same time. And the contractor, the musical contractor over there, wanted to have. Uh, he, he thought that if you had a good drummer and a good trumpet player, first trumpet player, that's all you needed. And you know, it it does make a difference. So he called Gary up, and Gary came over. Hmm. And the first the first day Gary got there, Gary. You know, I went to meet him. He says, "Let's go practice." And we went in the in the Outrigger Hotel room where we were playing the show. And uh, you know, we practiced, and that's that was it. You know, and I heard Gary, and I go, "Oh man, if this guy, if this guy can't make it in L.A. and he's got to come over to Hawaii," I said, "Well, I don't have a chance because mm-hmm. uh, he just sounded incredible." <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, it was uh, it, it was. You know, again, perfect timing. He comes over. He he played the Don, the Don Ho show for a while. Played mm-hmm. it, you know, when these other shows would come in, Sammy Davis. Yeah. So it, it was good. So there were Larry and Gary and I over there a lot, and even even still, this contractor brought over some other guys. He brought over Chuck Finley one time, Larry McGuire one time. There there was quite a bit happening. It was sort of. Vegas kind of over there for yeah. a while in the early mm-hmm. 70s with, you know, four or five kind of house bands. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, he wanted to have a good trumpet player everywhere. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about, um, you know, the, the whole idea of arranging. This this was something that, you know, you didn't have much experience with around that time. And with Seawind, you really developed your chops with arranging, right? I mean, you, you were, I guess you were literally forced into doing it because you had to do it. Is that right? Um, when we started, when Seawind first formed, so, you know, if, if we're going to have horns in the band, yep. we got to play parts, you know, we started playing 
you know, kind of top 40 existing stuff or stuff that we liked, Aretha Tunes and, and uh, Edgar Winter White Trash, uh-huh. Power of Power, yeah. you know, somebody, so I took off the horn parts. So that was kind of the beginning of it. I see. Is, is you know, okay, we're going to play these tunes. Somebody's, you know, we got to have something to play in the horn section. So it was a great kind of learning experience for me to, to, to have to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and see sort of at, you know, as best I could mm-hmm. what they were doing on the records and try to figure that out and say, oh, well, that's kind of cool. Yeah. You know, so I, it, it sort of sunk in and, you know, I kind of understood how Tower of Power was getting that sound and how, you know, White Trash would get that. Right. How Chicago would get their thing, how, mm-hmm. you know, all of that. So it, it was... It was a really good kind of forced learning, right? Uh, on 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 all of that, the scope of the horn arranging. Yeah, trial by fire. Just throwing, <laughs> just, exactly. trying, just jumping Kinda, right in. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and then you know, so we did that. We you know we we started. Uh, Bob started writing some tunes, and there were some you know tunes written that needed horn parts, uh-huh. and so you know that was a chance to try things, and then when. You know, we moved over here, and we were playing at at uh, the Baked Potato for a while. People would come in and hear us, and they'd say, "Well, you guys want to come and play on our record?" And oh, well, okay, you know, and and th- they allowed us to go in and again, kind of trial and error. Well, that you know, that sucks. You know, I don't, want, <laughs> I don't want that to sound like that. Let's change that and figure out how I can make that sound better. Yeah. So that was also a you know fortunate experience that. You know, I had that luxury of yeah. being in the studio now mm-hmm. and seeing what it sounds like. Yeah. It's, you know, it's it, it's a different ballgame in there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so then we learned that way, too. Yeah. You know, when you met Bob and, and Pauline um, Wilson, um, were, were they married at that time already when you when you met them first? No. No, they weren't. No, Pauline, uh, Pauline was singing on uh, the island of Hawaii mm-hmm. on Kona and... Larry and Bob and Kim and Ken had gone over to play with a uh, another singer over there yeah. to do a in a in a club and uh, heard Pauline sing and that was kind of the beginning of Seawind then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, were you were you a part of Ox right or not? Yeah. Okay. Yes, and then and then that was it was Ox before Seawind. Right. 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 Exactly. So so when you gig, you know, word must have gotten out not only because you know you were drawing a lots of crowds to your shows. In fact, we've we've heard some we've we've seen some posts that are like uh, reminiscent of the early days of when you guys were in in uh, the early days of Seawind. And some people even write that wow, to be at one of those Seawind shows back in the late seventies and early eighties, they said it was just magnetic. It was it was electrifying. People really, really reminisce really nicely about those shows, you know? What can you tell me about those early shows with, uh, with Seawind right, uh, right after you guys started? Well, we rehearsed a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we only wanted to be as good as it should be. Um, so it, it was an incredibly um, tight, well-put-together band. You know, the music part of it was... N- really never in question. You know, everybody was a really good player on their instrument. We rehearsed a lot. Pauline could really sing. Um, so, you know, that was the great part of it. The music part of it was, you know, was as good as anything at that point. Mm-hmm. It was a, a really good time for that. You know, more learning, more yeah. uh, experimenting, but still, you know, Bob's writing... Bowling, singing, all of that was, you know, it kind of all came together. Yeah. yeah. Well, apparently, like Eddie mentioned, word was really getting around because, you know, other musicians who were there in Hawaii touring, uh, guys would come over, like like including, you know, Jeff Arcaro, Harvey Mason Sr. And in fact, Harvey Mason, he was the one who eventually convinced you to uh, to move to L.A., which kind of ultimately changed your career forever. I mean, Har- Harvey produced the first two Seawind albums, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah he... They, they would come over. Uh, you know, Abraham Laboreal sat senior sat in with us one time. Yeah, Neil Schoen sat in from Journey. Oh uh, yeah, That's Jeff cool. refused. Jeff McCall refused to set in. He really? said, I'm not sitting in with that band. Really? Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
he would not do it. Uh, yeah, a lot of people. Lee Rittenauer came over, heard us. Uh, Hannibal Adderley. Uh, a, a whole host of people. And then Harvey came back a few times and, you know, talked to us and said, well, you guys need to come to L.A. You know, I, I think we can get a deal. And so that was... Uh, you know, uh, that was kind of the be- beginning of the move. Wow. Well, hey, Jerry, go back to Jeff Percaro for a second. Why wouldn't he sit in with the band? What was what was the deal he just there? Didn't, it, it just, you know, he just didn't want to uh, step into that because it was, you know, we, we were so rehearsed. Although, you know, we could have played a tune that he would have been comfortable with. I see. I see. You know, but, but you hear some of the, the stuff that we played, and it was, yeah. you know, so involved in, in complex and... Mm-hmm. And in the, yeah. you know, weather report, Ma Vishnu type stuff, mm-hmm. and we would play that, you know, and Jeff didn't, he's no, I'm not, I don't want to. You know, that you doesn't... Know, uh, that doesn't surprise me, actually, because we've we've talked a lot about Jeff with other guests, and uh, he was the kind of guy who, if, uh, if he thought he was good for the party, did it, and if he walked in and he looked at a chart and said, no, this is not what I want to do, he would just not do it, and, you know, he yeah. he was really cool about that. Yeah, great, great drummer. Mm-hmm. It's like putting on your favorite pair of old shoes, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And you mentioned Cannonball Adderley. Did he do it, or did he not? I'm, I'm sort of a, a jazz guy, and I love uh, Cannonball and his work, but tell me about that. Oh, no, he didn't sit in with us. He just came in to listen. Okay, gotcha. A whole bunch of, you know, when, when people would go to Japan or from Japan and they would stop back over in Hawaii, yeah. you know, that was kind of, well, where is there any music to hear? And, mm-hmm. and it would always be, not always, but, you know, everybody would come and hear us. Yeah. That, that was in town, kind of. So when you made the move to L.A., how quickly did word spread, you know, uh, around that area about the C1 horn section and, and uh, outside of your C1 projects? Did did gigs start falling into your lap right away, or did it take some time? Um, so we played at the Big Potato, so uh-huh. it was, you know, kind of the underground uh, yeah. cult musician following yeah. place there. Yeah. And within three months, Quincy called up, but somehow got my home phone number, Jerry, this is Quincy Jones. Do you want to come in and play on a session and arrange the horns? Yes. You know, I mean, how, <laughs> what a crazy <laughs> thing that was, you know? And so we went in, and it was just one tune, and it wasn't much on one tune, but it was sort of the, you know, the kind of the opening, get your foot in the door thing for us with Quincy. Yeah. Um, and and so that was three months, and then, like I said before, we had all of these other uh, people come in, kind of some unknown people that never really did anything, but that we got a chance to go into the studio and kind of experiment and figure out what sounds good and what sounded didn't sound good and what worked and what didn't. And, uh, you know, it, it didn't really take too long for that. I mean, with, you know, within, certainly within a year, we were doing quite a bit of stuff. Yeah. 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 As, as the C1 horn section, you know, and including, starting to include Gary and uh, Bill Reichenbach yeah. in on that, just right. to, you know, fill out the sound a little bit rather than just three horns. Yeah. Well, I can just imagine, you know, at the Baked Potato, what kind of people would, would be coming just to listen to you guys, just to know that Quincy was there. And, and uh, because he's a horn player, too. I mean, he got, everybody knows that he's sort of was, um, you know, brought to, brought, brought up in the ranks because of Frank Sinatra and his work with them, with him. And, uh, but over the years, you've worked really closely with Quincy and uh, most notably, of course, with Michael Jackson. And, you know, when you did those sessions with Michael Jackson back then, I mean, did, uh, did he do most of the arranging as a, as a, as a horn player himself, or did you collaborate uh, with with him on those sessions? Do you recall? It was uh, he sent me the cassette, and here it is. Do your thing, and you know I would bring the horn parts in, and there was you know something that he didn't you know that he wanted to change. You know he would just throw it. You know how about if we do this, and how about if we do that, and you know it was. It was, it's basically my parts, but, you know, if something wasn't quite working for him, he would say, what, if, you know, let's try this. So he, he was uh, more of a, just kind of a true producer in that, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. he wasn't, it wasn't hands-on for him to do that, uh, to write the parts. Mm-hmm. You know, he would certainly suggest things to do mm-hmm. and stylistically he would, he would say, yeah, well, this is, you know, kind of what we're going for here. 
let's try that. So, but, you know, not the physical pain of having to write the parts down, mm -hmm. to, you know, do all that. Yeah. Uh, he was kind of the overall visionary. Yeah. Well, even, even to these days, you know, Quincy really compliments your, you know, your musicianship. Let's just say it that way, you know, that uh, in a way and, and even in a video that I saw that, you know, he just talks to you about, you know, being, hey, you're a, a you're a quote unquote terminal for a higher power of, of your gift. And he feels really strongly about that. In fact, he feels that most great musicians are, you know, are like that, you know, in the creation process. So that that's a huge compliment from uh, from Q. Definitely. Yeah. 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 That was uh, a, a nice comment for him. Yeah. Hey Jerry, you know you've won several Grammys over the years, uh, but you've you've been involved in in so many recordings for artists who've gone on, you know, to have Grammy winning work. And, and I was thinking about those years between like eighty two and eighty three alone. You know, you played on Toto Four, and you also played on Michael Jackson's Thriller, and those two albums combined collected, a, you know. 14 Grammys just just by themselves. So first of all, I, I just quickly want to talk about Toto 4. And, you know, compared to Toto's previous three albums, this one was the first to incorporate, you know, horn parts on, on several tracks. So um, how are you invited to play on this record? And outside of playing your parts, uh, were you involved in arranging for the guys? Uh, so I had worked with, um, you know, a lot with David Page uh -huh. and Jeff and... You know, and they knew through, you know, of course, through Quincy and the other things that we had done, um, what I'd done. And so, you know, David and Jeff called up and said, you know, we're doing this record and we got a couple tunes and, you know, they got a couple ideas and you want to be interested. And yeah, of course, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I yeah. mean, you know, who would know that that record was going to be what it was. Right, but, right. You know, I mean, anytime you get a chance to work with those guys, yeah, you know, you got to jump on it. Exactly. So, I, you know, I did the Rosanna parts, and the main lick is sort of a combination of a lick that David had an idea for, and a lick that I had an idea for. It's a Jeff drum fill. Mm -hmm. Basically, he's going down. He's doing that with the horns. Oh, right, right, and so. Um, you know, David had a lick and it wasn't really, uh, you know, it was a little awkward kind of keyboard lick and, and, you know, and I sort of had a little, a little easier horn trumpet lick kind of, we did a little combo, put it together and, you know, and that's kind of what we ended up with. Yeah. And then, and then all of the rest of the horn parts, uh, well, let's see. David, the the trombone thing on the end of it, da, 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 mm -hmm. that's David's, uh -huh. and then all and and the other stuff is mine. So it's a little, it's a kind of a combo horn chart. That's cool, and it worked out great. Well, you know, we you touched on Michael Jackson and uh, and of course uh, Thriller. I could ask you the same question for that, but but you know, in combination to that, you two of the finest engineers recorded these two albums, Thriller and, and uh, Toto Four. Al Schmidt on Toto, and of course Bruce Sweetin on on Thriller. And you know, you've had quite a bit of, bit of experience working with these two guys, these two engineers. So, tell me how integral a role they played on these albums, and specifically their role in working with you and the horn sections. Well, Bruce is just. The guy is crazy. Yeah. Uh, just uh, outrageous. You get the horn sound that Bruce gets. Uh -huh. The first note you play is just, there's there's no messing around. The guy is just, uh, it was amazing. I never heard anything like that uh, before I worked with Bruce. It was just, it sounded better in the studio than it did out in the room, which... Yeah. It doesn't always happen like that. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, he bought all his mics new. Nobody touches his mics. He uses the best right. mics. Yep. We use a variation of microphones, um, but, you know, there would be a Neumann U47, there would be a, a Neumann FET 47, there would be a, mm -hmm. one on Speed Demon we used a uh, RCA 44, and I said, Bruce, I would. You're the only guy I would ever let put that microphone up in front of us because <laughs> it's a really high, intense part, and a lot of them just can't handle it. And he goes, 
he like twists his mustache and he goes, Jerry, I think you're going to really like it. <laughs> and, you know, he, of course, he's right. And we went and listened to it and it sounds ridiculous. So, uh, you know, great. And Al Schmidt, you know, yeah. same thing. What can you say? The guy right. said, you know, mega years of experience, knows what stuff's supposed to sound like, mm-hmm. puts up the mic, and it's right. You know, it's just, uh, you know, great working with those pros, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, that, that have done and seen it all. Well, I, I, I had a big thrill a couple of months ago. I, I went out to uh, L.A. for the AES convention there at the convention center, and uh, I was just walking by, and, and there was Bruce Wadeen sitting there in a, in a wheelchair with his wife, Dee, and, and I, I walked up to him and shook his hand and, and told him what a thrill it was to meet him. And, and uh, he, was, he was such a nice man. He let me, you know, he, I got a picture with he and his wife, and uh, it, was just, it was really cool to meet that guy. Yeah, yeah, great guy. That team that Quincy put together back then was just, you know, amazing group of guys. Yeah. Quincy always says it's like, it, it's the top of everybody's career, mm-hmm. all coming together all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Isn't Absolutely. that something? That's great. For, for those records, you know, Greg Fillingames and John Robinson and uh, Lewis Johnson and, uh, you know, Lucather and Paul Jackson and... Uh, David Page and you know the horn section and it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got a quick question. During the '80s, you know, and I don't want this to be too long of a question, but maybe some quick thoughts on you know with all MIDI and all the digital, you know, DX7s and the samplers and the drum machines and that kind of stuff, and everybody's playing digital sounds. How, how did you deal with that? Uh, a lot of drummers lost some, uh, as they say, some some business or some some gigs. But um, with the horn stuff, how, what's what's your take on that? Did you lose any uh, uh, work because of that? Yeah. Like- Everybody, you know, it was the new toy for everybody. You know, while they they had, you know, you could yeah, you could play drums and you could have the you know the horn samples and you could, you know, the string samples and you could do all that. So it was a new toy for everybody, and I got that. The only thing that kind of not not the only thing, but what really helped us as a horn section is they couldn't get my writing unless they hired the horn section. Right. So true. <laughs> that that sort of kept us kind of in the loop a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I got you. Um, but but yeah, you know they didn't need us to come in to go pow anymore, you know, because they yeah. had that. Yeah. But yeah, it, it 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 hurt everybody for a long time, and you know is continuing, and and everything's only getting better. Right. So you know, so when when people ask us to play, and it gets expensive for these people now. Yeah to have us come into play, mm-hmm. you know, we got to be good and we got to do something different that they couldn't or wouldn't do on their own. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, hey, Jerry, the next question that we have was inspired from uh, uh, some information we received from an Inside Music Cast uh, fan. His name is Lorenzo Setapanella, and he's from Italy. And he asks, uh, is it true that when you recorded tracks for the Airplay album, that the horn section performed some of their parts you know, walking in a circle and from different corners of the room to make like a, a swirling effect. Um, we did, actually, that was kind of a Steve Medeo who played on that record. Uh-huh. That was kind of a thing that he sort of liked to do. And and on a couple of the uh, parts, yes, we did kind of walk around the microphones a little bit. I mean, we did it not too much on that one, but uh-huh. on other records, we did do that where the microphones were set up uh-huh. uh, kind of in a line because okay. we weren't in a line on this one we were in kind of a U but uh, when the microphones were set up in a line yes we would walk up and down the microphone so the trumpets would be going Yeah, you know everybody would be going into other microphones and it would be changing panning and wow. you know you'd be changing you know level of microphones you know the trumpets would be playing into the sax mic and it would be a little louder mm-hmm. we did do that not so much on the airplay records though gotcha okay and that's a, that's crazy really, stuff <laughs> no, we're really curious about that you know that's it's very inventive yeah i know it's very original as to how approach recording that's a really cool story and that's neat you know steve was steve was a very inventive guy in the studio i will say that as, yeah. as inventive as anybody was wow. very cool 
Interesting. You know, Jerry, two words come to mind. I mean, um, on uh, with our correspondence at Inside Music Cast, you know, there's a lot of us, a few of us that are huge Al Jarreau fans. And, and when I think of Jerry Hay and Al Jarreau, two words come to mind. It's at the top of my of my mind. It's called, and the words are roof garden. So as you know, um, you know, people go nuts all over the, with this horn arrangement and performance of roof garden and Al Jarreau. Uh, can you re- recollect uh, the direction that you got from Al on this uh, this project? And tell us a little bit about working with Al. Well, when I, you know, worked with Al during those times, Jay Graydon was producing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Al didn't really have a, you know, a lot of. It was more input from Jay being the producer. I mean, I was always there and would have some comments, but it was it was mostly Jay and the same thing. He would send me the set, and I always, with the Jerosef especially, said. The longer I have it, the better it's going to be. So Jay would try to get it to me early on so I could, you know, have a couple weeks to listen to those tunes because they were, you know, involved tunes. It took a lot of time to write those out. So when we, you know, we would do that, that, the roof garden is Chuck Finley and myself and Bill Reichenbach's only three horns on that. Okay. You know, I, the same thing. I wrote the part. It's George Duke on piano. Uh-huh. It's a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm doubling George Duke's piano part a lot. Okay. Um, you know, just trying to get in that groove with 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 those guys. You know, yeah, exactly. right, right. Well, some of those those amazing tracks, of course, that we've discussed a lot here. Of course, breaking away, save me, and and uh, you know you're you're playing with, like you say, Chuck and Bill and everything. I mean, the sound that that Jay and you guys have on those Jarrell albums, they're just phenomenal. I mean, we still we talk about it this day by putting them uh, those records on and and just how relevant they are. Um, but I've got a quick question, real quickly. Um, you know, when, when it comes down to flugelhorns, you know. Uh, some of those uh, tunes that you have, do you typically just save the flugelhorns for the for the more mellower type of, uh, of of sound? Talk to us about the differentiating of the instruments that you use for different types of uh, arranging. Yeah, well, you know, flugelhorn. If it's used any other way than that, than you know, mellow stuff, it just that's not what it's meant for, you know. So I try to keep it, you know, just save it for those moments that just need a little softer sound, you know, kind of leading back down into a verse or, you know, on a, on a mellower tune, you know, it, it's, I, I very rarely have flugelhorn playing when trumpets are playing because it, it wouldn't really, it wouldn't really speak acoustically. Jerry, we've got a question from uh, Don Brightup, who's another uh, uh, correspondent here for Inside Music Cast. And he says, you know, your signature arranging style is an all brass, uh, he put in parentheses, no saxes, uh, unison or octave unison pecking out highly rhythmic figures, often in in a call and response style with the lead vocal. Is that a matter of taste or is that just what it takes for the section to show up amidst all the traffic of a pop or funk tune? Usually these for the last, I don't know, 25 years, it's been two trumpets, trombone, sax. Yeah. Has, has been my section. Jay, on the Duro stuff, Jay didn't want any, uh, Jay Green didn't want any saxophone okay. stuff to, to mess with the blend of the horns. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because it does, you know, it's it, it's got, you know, it's got a little buzz going, and he didn't want that. So that's why we use just brass on that. But But generally, I use a sax, trombone, two trumpets. Um, but as, as far as the arranging part of it, um, it's, uh, yes, you have to get, you have to get, uh, above all that's going on to, to be heard these days, you know? Um, so wherever there's space for horns, if it's, you know, if mm-hmm. it, yes, if it's a call and response with the vocal, if there's a place for the horns, yeah. right after the vocal, mm-hmm. I like to be there. Right, right. You know, Don's right on that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. My, I always say, I, my, the epitome of a horn lick for me uh-huh. is all you need is love. That's it. Because every time somebody sings that, 
facing the horn part. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All you need is love. And if you can do that and and make the horns be part of the tune, you're in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's the that's the secret right there. That was it's per- difficult to do because that that space isn't always there. Yeah. But when it is, I like to be there. Yeah, that was a perfect example, too. <laughs> hey, Don also asks, can you think of times when you've uh, taken a more vertical or lushly voiced approach? And, and how important is it to have a trombone player like Bill Reichenbach who can play in the same register as the trumpets much of the time? You know, the, the lush part, people don't really ask me to do that. Uh-huh. You know, that's not, you know, it's not what I've done. Mm-hmm. I, I have done it. That's not what I'm known for. Okay. You know, I'm known for the more percussive stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yes, we have done that. I mean, there have been some, you know, some tunes that, you know, I've written some low pads on and stuff and, uh, you know, kind of filler horns as opposed to accent-type horns. Right. Uh, more more uh, pad-type of things. Um, but you know, that's just not, especially with all the synth and stuff that's going on these days, you know, they don't really need me for that. Yeah. Okay. Um, and getting to Bill, Mm -hmm. he makes the horn section sound better. You know, there are a lot of great trombone players, but Bill has such a body of sound that makes, it just fills up the section and just gives, just makes the trumpet sound better yeah because you know he's so it's such a big round sound yeah yeah um and you know can play those crazy licks that i'll (laughs) write for trumpets somehow he'll figure out how to play those (laughs) like false (laughs) positions and stuff it's just you know because some of those especially some of those fancy, like, Tarot licks or Earthwind and Fire stuff, uh, sure. that, you know, it's a trumpet fingering thing that makes it easier for us to play it. Right. And, you know, saxophones can play it, and somehow Bill figures it out. And it's just, <laughs> it's crazy. That's it's impressive. crazy. But, but it, it's, you know, he is an amazing player. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and a great musician. Well, hey, Jerry, we've got just a few more questions, and one of them is uh, all of our Inside Music Cast correspondents have, have uh, battled with a, a simple question <laughs> that seems to baffle our guests. So we, we kind of hate to ask it, but here it is. And if, if there are any standout horn arrangements or performances that you know, are a favorite of yours that, you know, that stand out to you or you're particularly fond of, uh, what would they be? Or is that even a fair question? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there, I mean, it's a fair question, of course. The... the the Jarrell stuff has to be yeah. up there just because uh, we are so featured. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of Earth, Wind, and Fire stuff, hard to beat. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, being involved with Quincy, yeah. any of his things in the Michael Jackson records. Um, and, you know, David Foster projects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from Airplay to The Tubes to... Michael Buble to Seal, you know, to, you know, it, it, it's, you know, how can you say any one is the greatest, but, right. you know, just, it, it's kind of a combination of, of working with those great producers and great artists and great tunes and then allowing them, allowing me to put my spin on mm-hmm. what I think it might be. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I gave you a list of about 50 things there. But. <laughs> that, oh, that's, that's, that's okay. We can just identify so many. You know, Jerry, in pre- preparation for this for this chat with you, you know, we've gone on and on with our correspondence about G was listing all these tracks that are just – and you can go on forever because your discography is just – it's just amazing. Yeah, but massive. When we talk about the, these what we call quote-unquote nasty arrangements of yours yeah. <laughs> that are pretty much impossible for anybody that's human to play, I mean, <laughs> the guys that threw out like, you know, like you said, the, the, the Giro stuff. Uh, one guy 
threw out a, a, a Japanese band that's called T-Square that has an insane arrangement. The Tubes, Dave Weckl, you know, your work with Sea Wind, you know. Um, in fact, our, our correspondent in Nashville, Scott Sheriff, he asks, he goes, what do you attribute your ability to play in the stratosphere? Uh, a lot of practice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, a lot of really just, and, and from Bill Adam, you know, just... Um, Getting that foundation from him, and 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 then practicing with Larry Hall and Charlie Davis, who are two, uh, two I believe, and three years older than I am, and they were already more physically developed than I was, and just you know hearing what they were doing and saying, well, yeah, you know, okay, and and putting in the hours, you know, we were in yeah. that studio at seven in the morning and left at midnight and practicing 10 hours a day in, in college. And, and I just got it, you know, yeah. it, 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 it clicked. You know, we've talked a lot about past projects that you've been involved with, but you know, we'd love to know about some current bands or artists that have, or even horn players that have caught your attention. And, you know, one of the bands that we know that has caught your attention without question is a band called the Dirty Loops. And um, talk to us about your uh, interaction with the Dirty Loops and maybe some other, you know, current musicians that you're into. Um, the Dirty Loop stuff was, you know, of course, I, I heard the covers that they were doing on YouTube uh-huh. and, uh, you know, then heard that they were going to do a record and heard that they had signed to Verve with David Foster. So I happened to see David somewhere and I said, if there is any chance that there are going to be any horns on this stuff, I'll be there in a second. Yeah. So they ask for me, okay, through through their producer, uh, the uh, the guy who signed originally signed them, Andreas Carlson, who right. was a yep. songwriter. He's written a lot of songs. Uh, good guy, mm-hmm. and and so they had all listened to Sea Wind and all of that. So they knew everything that I'd done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, these guys. I went the first time I heard him play. They said, oh, yeah, and the extra keyboard player that they added mm-hmm. did a Sea Wind tribute in Sweden uh, <laughs> a couple years ago. So it's like, what? this is just too crazy. Uh-huh. They, they're an amazing band that, you know, these guys are the real deal. They're, it's not something contrived in the studio. They can really, really play. Yep. Joan can really sing. It's it's amazing. They're, they're, I've they're, heard them three times. Three times now, and <laughs> and every time it's just like you, you got to be kidding. The last <laughs> time I went up, I went up on stage. They're all in ear monitors on stage, uh-huh. so there's not really any sound on stage except for drums. So I just went up and stood behind the drums for like four tunes, mm-hmm. and it was like, wow, this guy <laughs> is oh yeah, it's, it's crazy, phenomenal, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, really crazy. Mm-hmm. So you know, talk with them. There's another record sort of starting, you know, hopefully we're going to do some more stuff on that, they said. Uh, working with Andreas Carlson is writing a musical, so we're doing some tunes for that. Wow, very cool. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, we just did a couple projects with Larry Klein this year. Okay. Um, did the Stanley Clark record that's just out. Mm-hmm. Did that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another, another project coming up with Larry Klein with a guy named Lamar from England, who we did his first record, mm-hmm. a kind of a '70s soul singer, good, good singer, mm-hmm. really cool voice, and uh, you know, some. I'm still w- working with uh, this composer named Darren Zygmunt. Mm-hmm. We, I'm sort of his right hand my uh, man, kind of when he's writing, uh, he likes me to be involved, and then I help him with orchestrations and. And uh, so he has a couple movies coming up. So uh, a lot of things in the works. Very cool. That sounds like you're incredibly busy. I know. <laughs> hey, Jerry, are you familiar by chance with um, a great Vegas band called, uh, led by Jerry Lopez? It's called uh, Santa Fe and the Fat City Horns. Have done. Uh, we did, um, I did a horn date with them, I don't know, a couple years ago. Damn, Very cool. good. And, uh, you know, I've known Danny Falcone and his father for a long time. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, I met all those guys and Nathan Pinoy and, you know, that they're, you know, it's a good band. Yeah. 
it's 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 really it's, good. I've never heard him play live, but oh. you know, hear all <laughs> hear all the stuff on uh, you know YouTube. And, yeah. Hopefully you can get over there to see him play live. I've seen him twice, and they just knock your socks off. I mean, they're they're absolutely fabulous. <laughs> what, yeah. They're one of my favorite live performances I've ever seen, and I've seen you know hundreds, thousands of concerts, and they're just <laughs> just awesome. <laughs> yeah. that's wow, the only, that's the only reason I like to go to Vegas now is to go see them play. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Hey, we're going to close with yeah. one more question, and this is from uh, Scott Sheriff, who Eddie mentioned a, a second ago. He's our Inside Music Cast correspondent from Nashville, and he said, you know, endurance is an underrated characteristic that, you know, you've obviously wor- worked very hard to possess, and what tips do you have for young horn players that have helped you become an Iron Man? He said practice, of course, but maybe uh, some specific uh, techniques? Well, there are a few exercises that I did that are endurance type exercises that you know they're not fun right but if you want to if you want to develop that endurance thing you have to do these just continually um expanding exercise that just you know takes it takes you way beyond the you know the the realm of of reality really uh-huh. yeah and i mean if you can play that you can play anything <laughs> right so, I mean, it's, it's you know, there are a few of those type of exercises that I used to do that, you know, that, that would help develop that endurance to the point that, you know, that is always an issue with trumpet that I want to take out of the, out of the equation mm-hmm. so that you don't have to worry about whether you're going to be able to make it or not because right. that's not even a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's like being in such great physical shape that you don't have to worry about about that aspect of trumpets hard enough. Mm-hmm. You know, very good advice. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, Jerry. Thanks so all much. Right. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us uh, on this episode of Inside Music Cast, and we appreciate all your time. And uh, we'll keep up with you. And make sure our, our uh, listeners uh, know more about what you're doing here in the future. Great. Thanks. All right. Take care. Special thanks to Jerry Hay for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Be sure to catch our next episode with Mike League from Snarky Puppy coming January 19th. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Mikhail Ingstrom, Loretta Sassaman, Scott Sheriff, Don Brightup, and Mats Unilon for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. <laughs>